Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. How's that for a classified ad? That reportedly was placed in a London paper soliciting participants for Ernest Shackleton's great transantarctic expedition in the 1910s. It's almost certainly apocryphal, but it absolutely fits the tone of the expedition. Welcome to part two of Antarctic History from the Exploration Medicine podcast, where we discuss the past, present, and future of medicine in extreme environments. My name is Dana Levin, and if you've not yet heard part one, I encourage you to start there, as it will add some context to this episode and will make more sense if you do. If you already have, or if you don't mind a lack of context, well, then let's get started. Ernest Shackleton's great transantarctic expedition is one of my favorite expedition stories. It's the action movie to Scott's tragedy in Amundsen's textbook. And Alfred Lansing does this tale far better justice in his book Endurance than I will, so it's definitely worth a read. But that said, hidden within the story are a few key lessons worth talking about, so I'll attempt my own abridged retelling here. The story begins after Amundsen's 1911 success reaching the South Pole. This news came as a bitter disappointment to the British explorer Ernest Shackleton, who had polar aspirations himself. In fact, Shackleton had made his own polar attempt four years earlier, but his method of using untested motorized tractors and ill-suited ponies for transport over the ice left him slower than expected, and he aborted his attempt about 160 kilometers north of the South Pole when he ran low on food. Now, Shackleton was no stranger to the Antarctic because he got his start on the same discovery expedition that Scott did. So he knew the challenges of the environment, and he immediately began revamping his plans and training for a new polar expedition upon returning to England. But Amundsen's success had taken the glory from being the first, and much of the funding from him. So he wrestled with redirecting his energies and eventually settled on another polar expedition, but a brand new goal. He wanted to be the first to cross the Antarctic continent. He spent three years securing finances and methodically planning this expedition, and he decided on a two-ship approach. One ship would land near the McMurdo Sound and plant supplies on that half of the continent, similar to the way that Amundsen planted supply depots for his polar push. And the goal was to ensure that the actual expedition would have fresh supplies and assistance on the latter half of their journey. The other ship would land on the opposite side of the continent in the Weddell Sea near South America. That ship, the Endurance, would carry a 14-man crew and a 14-man expedition crew, including Shackleton himself. These 14 men would leave from the Endurance, cross over the sea ice and half the continent until they started reaching the supply depots planted by the second team. Then they would follow those depots until they reached the ocean on the opposite side and completed their transantarctic trek. Shackleton learned from his prior expeditions and those of Scott and Amundsen, and he opted to abandon ponies and tractors in favor of the more tried-and-true method of dog transport that was demonstrated to such great effect by Amundsen. By the summer of 1914, the expedition was ready to go, but 1914 was not a great year for the European continent, and as they were getting ready to go, assassins in Prague were killing Archduke Franz Ferdinand and setting in motion the dominoes that would culminate in World War I and one of the most rapid and violent periods of change in world history. While Shackleton is not responsible for World War I, 
It is important to understand that, it, that this is the backdrop of his expedition, and no amount of expedition success would be sufficient to make headlines when millions of people were dying and the major commercial, cultural, and educational centers of the early 20th century world were being systematically demolished. It was colossally bad timing, and as the expedition left, it consigned itself to be forgotten in the public eye and to eliminate any chance of rescue should things go wrong, which, of course, they did. In August of 1914, just four days after Germany invaded Belgium, Shackleton set sail on board the Endurance from Plymouth to Buenos Aires with 28 men, 69 dogs, and one cat named Mrs. Chippy. The Endurance was well provisioned for an extended journey, but they had overlooked one key problem that had plagued many ships before them, sea ice. The Endurance was not designed to survive the immense pressure generated by seasonal sea ice pressing up against the permanent ice shelf, and as you may recall from the second episode, sea ice is not a forgiving environment for such mistakes. The Endurance struggled with this sea ice and with storms until February 4th when the ice finally sealed around the ship, trapping the Endurance and its crew. Endurance would never sail free again. To give you some perspective, if you've never been to the polar regions, Standing on sea ice really feels no different than standing on land. It's basically a flat plane of rough white and blue ice that feels as solid as anything else. Today we even build runways and land huge cargo planes on it. But it isn't as stable as it may seem. It really is a giant ice cube floating in the open ocean, and it's constantly shifting, moving, freezing, and thawing, just slower than we can normally perceive. When we build our runways, we pick the spots carefully, and only after extensive testing to make sure the ice is thick enough and stable enough. When we send expeditioners out, we make sure they know how to recognize dangerous ice, and that they carry rescue equipment to avoid plunging into the freezing ocean and being lost beneath the icebergs. Even with this training, we still lose people and machines through the ice to carelessness or unexpected shifts today. So this is not an environment to take lightly. It also comes in two flavors. There's the permanent sea ice, and there's the seasonal sea ice. Permanent ice, which is also called an ice shelf, is dozens of meters thick, and it stays frozen year-round. The shelf where Endurance was trapped is known as the Larsen Ice Shelf, and it extends about 200 kilometers offshore. Until recently, the Antarctic ice shelves had been stable for thousands of years. Human activity in the form of global warming is changing this, and scientists are monitoring large chunks of this now impermanent ice that are breaking off and moving north. This is part of a larger climate change pattern that's already having effects on human health, and we'll discuss those in an upcoming episode. Seasonal sea ice is a different animal altogether. It's only about two to four meters thick, and it goes through regular freeze-thaw cycles with the seasons, hence seasonal. Since this ice is further out, Currents and tidal action cause it to move towards the shore and press up against the thicker, more permanent ice shelf. This causes it to fracture and crack unpredictably, creating crevasses and ice towers several meters high. If you can imagine the force it would take to crack a four-meter-thick block of ice, you can get a sense for the kind of forces the Endurance's hull was, well, enduring. The crew understood this danger, and after ten days of hoping the ice would break up around them, and let the ship free, they left the ship to try to free it using chisels, which predictably didn't get them very far. Aside from the sea ice, however, they had planned well. And the expedition had plenty of supplies and heat, and they were in no immediate danger. So when the chisel plan proved ineffective, they just gave up and decided to wait. 
They waded through 11 months in the safety of their ship. 11 months of wood and metal battling slowly against thickening ice and tides, which ended in early October of 1915 with the Endurance's hull finally collapsing and being crushed. The 28 men, 69 dogs, and Mrs. Chippy were now stranded on the sea ice at the beginning of Antarctic spring, 500 kilometers from shore, with no hope of rescue, no viable ship, and thousands of kilometers between them and any civilization. To reiterate, the Larsen ice shelf in the early 20th century was stable, but only about 200 kilometers offshore. Shackleton's crew is over 500 kilometers from shore, very much on seasonal sea ice, and very much over open ocean in Antarctic spring. The Earth's orbit was slowly and relentlessly carrying them towards more direct sunlight, transferring more heat to their floating ice raft and starting a thermodynamic clock that would end with their raft melting away beneath them. At this point, Shackleton let go of his aspirations to cross the continent and switch the expedition's priority to survival mode. He organized the men into a temporary camp, retrieved as many supplies from the wreck of endurance as they could, and outlined their choices. Stay put and wait for the ice to carry them closer to land, hoping they would reach it before it melted, or speed the process by marching for an old depot on Paulette Island and carrying whatever supplies they could manage. Knowing the sea ice would soon begin to melt, Shackleton chose to, uh, to march, but they only averaged about three kilometers per day due to changing conditions and difficult weather, and Shackleton realized they would not be able to carry enough supplies to make this trek, and he abandoned this plan, instead deciding to establish a camp and wait for conditions to improve. They dubbed this camp Patience Camp, and as their salvage supplies dwindled, they supplemented their food by slaughtering their dogs and Mrs. Chippy. There are numerous accounts of how difficult this was for the men to accomplish from their diaries that they kept during the expedition, but it did give them ample food until they learned to hunt for seals and penguins, which were relatively abundant in the areas they were. Eventually, the sea ice drift did bring them to within 100 kilometers of Paulette Island, which is near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula. And while this drift was encouraging, it did mean they were now much further north, much further into summer, and literally on thin ice. Despite repeated attempts, the ice between them and Paulette Island still remained impassable, and the warmer temperatures had begun to take their toll. They were now drifting on a visibly smaller ice raft that was steadily getting smaller by the day and floating uncontrolled past the Antarctic Peninsula into the open ocean. No ships had reason to travel this far south, and even if they did, most of the long-range vessels in December-February of 1915 were taken up by the war effort or desperately trying to avoid German U-boats. By this time, their major source of supplies, the frozen wreck of the Endurance, had thawed and slipped beneath the sea to rest on the ocean floor. But Shackleton had expected this. He knew their time was limited, and he didn't want to make the same mistake as prior expeditions by trusting that somehow attempting an ice march that failed months earlier would now succeed, despite less stable conditions. So with this in mind, Shackleton had already sent several expeditions back to the wreck and salvaged any remaining accessible supplies, including sails, excess wood, their star-based navigation equipment, and the three lifeboats, which were still seaworthy. He also posted a watch each night and stored the supplies in the boats, preserving extra seal and penguin meat and organizing his crew into segments so everyone knew which boat was theirs should catastrophe strike. By April, their flow had become unlivable. 
This is a lovely euphemistic term for waking up in the middle of the night to a loud crack and finding that your flow has split down the middle of your camp and your tents are now floating on two rapidly dissolving and very wet icebergs that are drifting apart from each other. They were prepared for this, though. And with some haste, but relatively little chaos, all 28 expeditioners squeezed into the three lifeboats and rafted together to figure out their next move. They are now stuck in three small, mostly open-top lifeboats, with only camping stoves and moldy sealskin sleeping bags for warmth. They are drifting through the same ice that had crushed their larger ship four months earlier, and entering into an area known for powerful storms, unpredictable currents, and sharp, hard-to-see icebergs. There are a few other islands off the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, but they are small, they are barren, and if you miss them, you're now more than 3,200 kilometers from the nearest landmass, and this is where Shackleton's crew found themselves as the nights grew longer heading into the Antarctic winter of 1915. Shackleton clearly made a colossal judgment error in chartering a non-reinforced ship, but one thing he did focus heavily on was crew selection, and he took his crew's well-being very seriously. He carefully screened and selected his crew before the trip to be healthy, capable, and skilled travelers, and he knew each of them very well. He also conducted careful interviews and developed rudimentary psychological profiles for each crew member. His selections were so detailed that even during their frantic evacuation from the ice flow, he arranged who would go to which lifeboat, and did so taking into account the personalities and capabilities of each person, so there would be a leader, a navigator, and no more than one or two people who would be prone to panic. He even chose the most difficult to get along with and the most likely to panic for his own boat to ensure that the others would not have to manage them. He would constantly check in with his crew members and alternately offer sympathy, encouragement, or threats depending on what each crew member needed. He would also not make decisions unilaterally, taking his crewmates' thoughts and preferences into account every time he had to make a major decision to ensure that there would be minimal conflict. At one point, he even gave his own mittens to his photographer who had lost them during the evacuation from the ice flow, and Shackleton suffered frostbite as a result. This care with crew selection and concern for their well-being as a leader, and his expert conflict management, is nearly unparalleled among the polar explorers. One example of Shackleton's ability to select the right person for the job is Frank Worsley. Mr. Worsley was a New Zealand-born sailor who deserves quite a bit of recognition for his skills as a navigator, and a significant share of the credit for how the Transantarctic Expedition turned out from this point forward. So imagine being lost in a completely uninhabited ocean, bobbing in a tiny boat with limited supplies, no hope of rescue, and battered by nearly constant storms of icy winds. Now imagine trying to navigate through this with no GPS, no radio, no radar, and only a rudimentary map. What you do have are salt-soaked paper navigation tables and star charts with simple hand tools and occasional unpredictable glimpses of the sky through the clouds. If you can picture this, first, I'm sorry for giving you your latest nightmare, and second, you have a decent idea of what Worsley was dealing with in order to keep all three small boats close to the Antarctic archipelago for five days to locate Elephant Island at the very tip of this chain. Needless to say, the expeditioners were thrilled when they did sight Elephant Island, but the seas weren't ready to give up just yet. The wind and waves were too rough to attempt a landing on the island, and the expedition was forced to raft together with ropes and spend one more night in the rough waters, trusting their makeshift sea anchor to hold them in place. Although, 
through the night, the waves grew higher, forcing the boats to separate further and further from each other to avoid being bashed against each other and broken apart. And when the sun finally rose over calmer seas the next morning, Shackleton's crew awoke to find themselves alone on the water. But this is one of those tales where the crew just refuses to give up, no matter how devastating things get. John Weissman, the author of the SAS Survival Guide, describes survival as a mindset more than anything else. He outlines a pyramid with the foundation being will to live, the middle being knowledge, and the very tip being the kit you have with you. Basically, with the right attitude and the right knowledge, it doesn't matter what you have to work with. In the words of Ian Malcolm, life will find a way. Shackleton's expedition is one of the strongest arguments supporting this concept. He chose a crew who had a very strong will to live and trained them. They were capable of thinking clearly in a hopeless, desolate, unforgiving environment, and through their training they were able to understand the priorities of survival. So Shackleton took stock of the situation, and yeah, he'd lost two-thirds of his men, but their own condition had not changed. They still needed to reach land, they were still near Elephant Island, the crew remained healthy and tolerably warm, and they had more than enough food and water for the short trip remaining. So they began to circumnavigate Elephant Island, hoping to find the other boats, but keeping close enough to shore to search for a beach. And most of the island boasted sheer cliffs that rose hundreds of feet above the waterline, but on the opposite side from where they started, they managed to locate a stretch of sand low enough to drag their boat onto. It backed up against the tall cliffs, but they were able to find a place to rest. They found something else too. The other lifeboats. Somehow, all three boats had survived the storm, and Shackleton had made sure the leader of each boat was a capable crewman, and they all had similar resolve and similar ideas on what to do if they got separated in terms of reaching a beach. So they approached this beach, survived the breakers, and the first boat made it to the shore, but... As with every other part of the story, the easy approach belied hidden dangers. And in this case, they discovered their beach at low tide. The expeditioners noticed that the waterline at high tide seemed to be several feet up the large cliffs. While the crew might have been able to climb to safety, they certainly could not pull their boats up far enough. So they would have been standing on the top of these cliffs, watching their only means of escape float away into the frigid waters, never to be seen again. Shackleton saw this, and decided not to fall for it. Instead, they abandoned the beach and reluctantly pushed back out to sea and continued to sail around the island for several more hours. Eventually, though, they did find another beach, one with a more difficult approach, but a more gradual slope that took them well above the high tide mark. Now, Elephant Island is not exactly a paradise in the strictest sense of the word. It's uninhabited, rocky, cold, and remote, but it won't melt. It does host birds and seals, and it has a freshwater spring. So, after spending 497 days under the constant threat of being crushed, drowned, frozen, starved, and dehydrated to death, I'd be pretty excited about finding this place, too. And the men finally had a chance to rest, and this was really their first victory since the Endurance was trapped in ice. So they took the time to set up a camp and celebrate a little. But after this, they had to start setting priorities, and survival priorities are a bit like emergency medicine. There are a lot of things that could go wrong, and trying to tackle them all at once is overwhelming. So you have to use a strategy to systematically prioritize the tasks that need to be done and take them one step at a time. One method for doing this is to pick the shortest clock. Basically, 
figure out what's likely to kill you first. Stop that, and then move on to the next thing. In the case of these men, exposure to the elements would kill them in minutes to hours, lack of water in days, and lack of food in weeks. If they could secure shelter, water, and food, they'd be able to push their survival clock back to whichever of those resources would run out first. And sure, there were other risks, but with those basics handled, they'd be in pretty good shape and have at least a few weeks to figure out the next major threats and what to do afterwards. So, survival is a game of willpower and putting out fires to buy time for escape or rescue. Since there were 28 healthy men, Shackleton assigned tasks, delegated them to the crew, and the men set about pursuing these basics more or less simultaneously. They built a shelter out of one of the lifeboats, naming it the Snuggery. They unpacked their supplies and found areas where they could hunt for seal and birds. And they located the freshwater spring further inland. In short, they found they could survive on the island without too much trouble. And with the essentials handled, they turned their thoughts as to how they would get back to civilization. Elephant Island is nowhere near any normal shipping lanes, and they had no method for signaling or radio to call for help, so they figured their best hope of rescue would be to set sail themselves again. With this in mind, Worsley calculated two possible destinations for them, and neither was very encouraging. The first is the Falkland Islands. This South American island chain is nearly a thousand kilometers away, but it's into the wind, which makes the journey long and difficult. It was hard to predict how long the trip would take, and thus running out of supplies before reaching the islands was a real risk. However, the islands did cover a wide area, and they're frequently trafficked by ships, which means the chance of encountering a rescue vessel was fairly high. Their second option is South Georgia Island. Now this island is tiny, it's 37 by 160 kilometers, lying 1300 kilometers away and through some of the stormiest seas on the planet, but it is downwind. This means that the trip would be faster and the supplies would be less of a problem. But the only civilization there is a small Norwegian whaling station which made shipping traffic far less common, and it was also the only land in that direction, so if they missed it, they'd be lost at sea. Shackleton considered these options, and he chose South Georgia. Even though the Falklands were a bigger and more populous target, Shackleton believed the longer trip time and risk of not being able to carry enough supplies was greater than that of being blown out to sea and missing South Georgia. Interestingly, the Falklands were also the site of a British naval base, which made them occasional targets for the German Navy in World War I. While Shackleton had no way of knowing this, his decision to avoid the Falklands also avoided the threat of German military action in the area, and might have increased his chance of success for that reason. Even though he believed the risk balance to be less with South Georgia, he did not want to take any more risk than necessary, so he decided to leave the majority of the men in safety on Elephant Island and take only one lifeboat and a small crew to secure rescue for the larger party. They learned from their previous sea journey that the lifeboats needed higher walls, a better cabin, sails, and a few other modifications to make them more seaworthy in the stormy Antarctic waters. So they took some supplies that they'd saved from the Endurance and some parts of the other two boats to reinforce the one they'd named the James Caird after one of the expedition investors. They only took four weeks of food though, figuring that if the journey took longer than that, they'd have missed South Georgia Island altogether and attempting to survive in the open ocean was not a likely possibility. On April 25th, 1916, Ernest Henry Shackleton, Frank Worsley, John Vincent, Timothy McCarthy, Tom Crean, and Henry McNish crammed into their seven meter long modified whaler 
and spent their days living in that cramped boat, soaked by salt water, rocked by storms, and frozen by the cold Antarctic temperatures. They were now on a 1,300-kilometer-long open-ocean trip in a boat built from cannibalized parts of three damaged lifeboats and using only stars for navigation that were often obscured by storm clouds and long Antarctic days. But they did have Frank Worsley, and after 16 days, his pinpoint navigation led them to sight South Georgia Island. It took them an additional two days battling storms and high seas to reach it, but they did reach it and were finally able to land on King Hakone Bay in May of 1916. They later discovered that the same storm that prevented them from landing for those two days had sunk a 500-ton cargo ship not far from their own position. So this is an incredible triumph that, sh that really can't be overstated, and would likely make headlines on its own, but in Shackleton's broader expedition, this is just one more in a series of improbable events and unlikely survival stories, and it wasn't the last. Their goal was to reach a Norwegian whaling station that lay on the northern edge of the island. But of course, they'd managed to land on the southern edge. Given the rough seas and fear of being blown out past the island never to be seen again, they were hesitant to set out to sea again. But the interior of the island was entirely unexplored, uncharted, and consisted largely of shifting glaciers, deep crevasses, freezing waterfalls, and several thousand foot mountain peaks. Again, this is an impossible choice, but Shackleton considered the options and decided to attempt to cross the island. However, he did not trust to fate and wanted to build in a level of redundancy should the crossing fail, like he did by leaving the men on Elephant Island. So to that end, he left a small group on the beach with instructions to pursue a sea-based journey if they didn't hear from the land party within a few days. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean pushed nails into their boots to act as improvised crampons and headed into the island's interior with 50 feet of rope, a makeshift sledge, some navigation gear, and no map, since none had ever been made. It took them 36 hours, including a harrowing descent of a glacier by sliding on a makeshift sledge and scooting through freezing waterfalls, but at 7 a.m. on May 20th, 1916, they heard the steam whistle of Stromness Base and knew they'd reached their destination. To add some perspective on this, the next successful crossing of South Georgia Island would not occur until October of 1955 by Duncan Carse, who wrote this of Shackleton's expedition, quote, I do not know how they did it, except that they had to, end quote. Now let's switch sides here for a moment and try to imagine the Norwegian's perspective. So you're assigned to work at a remote whaling station on an uncharted island beyond any real shipping lanes and further south than nearly all other civilized outposts of the time. Two years ago, there were some brief news references to a group of explorers intending to cross Antarctica, and that was quickly overshadowed by the events of World War I, which is now at its height. No one has heard from these expeditioners since, and given the fates of the other Antarctic explorers, these men were presumed lost. Suddenly, three strange men walk out of the middle of your remote, uncharted island and identify themselves as Shackleton and his men. None of Shackleton's party spoke Norwegian. But somehow, he managed to explain to the workers who he was, what happened, and then convince them to send their whaling ship around South Georgia Island to retrieve the other two members of the James Carrot's crew. With that, Shackleton had made it back to civilization. But by 1916, World War I was in full swing, and Germany's U-boats made sea travel pretty treacherous. Most countries were very hesitant to lend out any ship for non-war-related matters since 
They were losing ships by the dozens each month and losing hundreds of thousands of soldiers every day. Major cities lay in ruins, and the devastation of this war was on a scale no one had ever seen in human history. Additionally, it was now May, and the pack ice had started to form again, heading into the Antarctic winter. This is the backdrop when Shackleton asked to borrow a ship from the British government to run a rescue mission for a group of men he left on Elephant Island who may or may not still be alive. Unsurprisingly, Britain refused. Shackleton was not going to give up, though, and he managed to convince three different governments to make three separate attempts over the next four months. All of them were thwarted by pack ice. He made his fourth and final attempt in August of 1916, when he convinced the Chilean and British governments to lend them two ships, this time with reinforced hulls, on August 25th. They encountered thick fog, pack ice, and struggled to navigate, but by August 30th, at 11.30 a.m., the fog spontaneously lifted, and within an hour, they'd sighted Elephant Island, located the camp, and rescued all remaining members of the expedition. One member of the Elephant Island crew had suffered a heart attack on the island, but he had recovered by the time they were rescued, and he lived for many more years without any consequences. They still had to cross the U-boat-infested waters surrounding England, but the expedition's fortunes had finally shifted, and they managed to do so without incident, returning all 28 expeditioners from the Endurance safely to England in the fall of 1916. The men stranded on Elephant Island do have their own survival story, but I'll spare you those details as this episode is already getting long. As for the other half of the Trans-Antarctic Expedition, the Ross Sea Party on the other side of Antarctica, they too had difficulties with their ship. The Aurora was blown off its anchor during a storm, stranding the ten men of the depot planting crew on Cape Evans, with only the supplies intended for Shackleton's expedition. The crew had to choose between using the supplies meant for the Transantarctic expedition and dooming them to die of starvation, or risking their own starvation on the shores of Ross Island. Fortunately, like Amundsen, they had built in extra supplies. The Ross Island crew knew that Shackleton depended on the depots, so they took only the minimum necessary supplies for their own survival and planted the depots anyway while waiting for their rescue. They ended up losing three of their men due to exposure and crevasses on the ice, but the majority of these men too were rescued the following year. At the time, the expedition ended in near obscurity due to the events of the war. But this incredible tale of survival in the face of a crushed ship, melting sea ice, two Antarctic winters, being lost at sea, pinpoint navigation to a tiny island, successfully crossing this uncharted island of crevasses and glaciers, and finally being rescued by ship in the height of the U-boat war, is why Shackleton has earned himself a place in the annals of expedition leader history. So what can we learn from these expedition stories of Shackleton, Scott, and Amundsen? How does it inform and relate to exploration medicine? In tales like these, we tend to pick off the specifics first, so like how to manage snow blindness more effectively, or how do we estimate calories, or how do we prevent hypothermia, that kind of thing. But the more valuable lessons are similar to those that we got from the North. Those who succeeded, planned, planned for flexibility, and were willing to give up their goals if things went too far off of that initial strategy. Amundsen described luck as a function of the way in which every difficulty is foreseen and precautions taken to meet them. He followed in the footsteps of his predecessors Perry and Nansen from episode 2, and planned and studied enough to make the extraordinary mundane. Amundsen followed Helmuth von Moltke's wisdom that no plan survives first contact with the enemy, and he assumed that he would make mistakes. 
that he would encounter unexpected events that would throw him off course. So he made sure he had reserves to handle these unknowns, like planting extra flags, assuming a slower average pace, packing extra food, and performing as many navigation calculations before leaving to make the trip easier while he was there. He went as far as traveling during the South Pole night so that the sun would be at his back, reducing the risk of photokeratitis or snow blindness. And that kind of minutia is why he was such a successful expeditioner. Scott trusted his original plan would be sufficient. He did not account for the strain of man-hauling in his calorie counts for the expedition, and assumed that they'd move at a faster pace than they did, even when evidence from the early part of the expedition showed that they could not. This meant that his team started off malnourished to begin with. He did plant flags around his depots, but he did not plant them along his route, and, and he also didn't plant nearly as many as Amundsen did, which meant that when he encountered inclement weather, he had to stop and wait for it to clear in order to continue following his tracks, putting an increased strain on already stressed resources. Scott also failed to pretest any of his new equipment prior to leaving, and this was why their transport plan of motorized sledges and ponies without shoes was so dismally unsuccessful. It also cost him in fuel stores, since they evaporated through the leather seals on his canisters rather than Amundsen resealing them with solder. The point is, Amundsen, like the other successful polar explorers, learned from the past experience. He practiced, trained, and added redundancies, and then he left room for flexibility. He also took aspects of past expeditions that worked, modified those that didn't, and tested anything he changed. Scott didn't do this, choosing instead to focus more on personal grit and the glory of the final goal. Bottom line, don't be a Scott. Put the effort in to carefully design your expedition and learn, but don't copy what was done before. So where does Shackleton fit in? He clearly made some errors in judgment that had catastrophic effects in the beginning of his trip, but while sensational, his survival story hides a planning mind more closely aligned with Amundsen than might first be expected. Before leaving, he chose 28 men healthy enough to survive for two years on the ice and mentally capable of handling a number of near-death experiences and apparently hopeless situations, while still following the expedition command structure, not losing hope, and avoiding significant interpersonal conflict. People don't spend two years surviving off the desolate wilderness of the Antarctic continent and return safely without being able to get along, and this was not an accident. Crew selection, psychological compatibility, resilience, and having the right stuff for the current mission were key to his success. In his own words, he writes, quote, The personnel of an expedition of the character I proposed is a factor on which success depends to a very large extent. The men selected must be qualified for the work, and they must also have the special qualifications required to meet polar conditions. They must be able to live together in harmony for a long period without outside communication, and it must be remembered that the men whose desires lead them to the untrodden paths of the world have generally marked individuality." End quote. Even the Ross Island crew, which we did not discuss in detail, carried out their mission after the shore party of ten men were stranded on the ice. When the Aurora's anchor broke, the ten men had only the supplies intended for the second half of Shackleton's transantarctic crossing. But rather than give up and survive off of those rations themselves, they calculated how many of the depot rations they could take for themselves without compromising Shackleton's survival. They then supplemented that with seal and penguin meat and continued to carry out the mission they were expected to, even though their own ship was gone and they were 
probably stranded on the ice indefinitely. We've covered the dangers of poor crew selection in past episodes, and they will show up again in future ones, but Shackleton stands as a paramount example of what happens when you do it right. Another Shackleton quality is an uncanny ability to never give up, except when that's exactly what he needed to do. And this is evident in his aborted 1907 polar expedition to the South Pole, as well as his trans-Antarctic expedition. He had an amazing ability to recognize red flags, like consuming more food than anticipated, or slower-than-expected progress across difficult terrain, and he would take action to correct his strategy accordingly. He lived by the phrase, quote, better a live donkey than a dead lion, end quote. While circumstances on the Transantarctic expedition required him to nearly continuously modify his plans, we can clearly see the hallmarks of strategy and reassessment in his continual modifications. He made careful and meticulous changes to his survival tactics in the field based on available data and resources. He continued to direct crew selections, even down to the level of who stayed in what tent and who would make up each lifeboat crew, and who would go on, on hunting expeditions. He also never acted rashly. When the initial plan to march for Paulette Island proved slower and more strenuous than expected, he reassessed how much food they could carry and how long it would take, and he aborted the trek long before the group got into any serious trouble. It meant three months of waiting on the ice, but he turned that into three months of preparation, stockpiling supplies, and planning their next move. The planning was done in the field, but it wasn't done last minute, and nothing was executed without testing it and at least one level of redundancy. They bought time for themselves by securing shelter, water, and food, and they stockpiled supplies that might be useful, even if they didn't know what they'd be useful for, such as lifeboats, salvaged wood, sails, seal blubber, seal and penguin meat, and even the ice. They also used their bought time to ultimately secure rescue. Whenever a particularly dangerous step was taken, there was always a backup in place. The men left on Elephant Island were there just in case the voyage of the James Caird did not succeed, and those left behind on the beach at South Georgia could take, could take a boat around the island to the whaling station if Shackleton never returned to get them. These are prime examples of contingency and crisis leadership, adapting the tactics on the ground to fit the realities that were not anticipated in the initial strategizing phase. It's just as crucial to success as the preventive strategies and careful pre-trip plans that Amundsen exemplifies. Pre-trip planning is like strategy. It's preventive medicine. It ensures that one has what you need to survive, understands the likely points of failure, and has a sense of the risks. But when those risks or failures occur in the field, tactics and contingency and crisis management are needed to recognize the new reality and that it no longer fits the initial strategy and change the plan to fit the new realities. In aerospace medicine, Amundsen exemplifies preventive, while Shackleton represents contingency. Both of these can be effective on their own, but they are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, they complement each other. The more complicated the undertaking, the more mysterious the environment, and the further from help an expedition goes, the more crucial it is to ensure both contingency and prevention are part of an expedition. That is why the current state of the art is to employ both whenever possible, just as the modern polar medicine stations rely on careful medical screening, supply shipments and facility maintenance, but also send teams out with caregivers on the ground, radios to communicate with specialists, 
and carefully curated but flexible medical supply kits. These early expeditions did face many medical risks, including hypothermia, frostbite, insomnia, overexertion, traumatic injuries, heart disease, failures of medical screening such as heart attacks, asphyxiation, carbon monoxide poisoning in the snow-covered tents, drowning, animal encounters, burns, sunburns, which are a form of radiation injury, GI distress, musculoskeletal injuries, concussions, starvation, infection, equipment failure, psychological stresses, and snow blindness. Today, Arctic and Antarctic science is very different, but the risks are the same. The researchers are still human, and the environment is still harsh, but we have developed better shelters and faster, more reliable transportation. We also have a much better understanding of the operational environment, largely due to the risks these early explorers took. Risk tolerance and the importance of accepting a certain level of risk is another wonderful topic that we'll cover in an episode later on. It's the more philosophical and ethical side of exploration medicine, but it's a fascinating debate and one that's well worth having. For now, though, I want to touch on some more recent polar stories. Most modern expeditions are carefully planned and heavily screened before setting foot on the continent. Field teams are often ferried in by aircraft rather than ship, and based in established, heated, and regularly supplied research stations, where they'd spend months to years on the continent. Ships do still travel there, but they're guided by satellites and built with reinforced hulls and segmented bulkheads to resist flooding. Also, rescue crews can now reach them in hours instead of weeks, should it be necessary. As an example of how much things have changed, in 1980 it was estimated that a total of 31,000 explorers, tourists, or guests of national scientific expeditions had ever visited Antarctica since the beginning of time. More than twice that number visited Antarctica in 2009 alone, and that number increases every year. This sheer volume of people raises serious concerns for Antarctic ecology, but also for medical care. And we'll get to a sense of how that's changed as we go forward. And we'll begin in 1961. The Soviet Novolazarevskaya Station, I apologize for the pronunciation there, was staffed by 13 crew members, including a doctor, for two-year stints. On the morning of April 29th, the 27-year-old station doctor, Leonid Rogozov, awoke with a moderate fever, feeling a little bit weak and nauseous. Later that day, he developed pain in his right lower quadrant. By April 30th, he had localized signs of peritonitis, and he diagnosed himself with appendicitis. Unfortunately, the nearest research station with another doctor was more than 1,600 kilometers, that's about 1,000 miles away, and severe snow conditions prevented any aircraft from taking off or landing at Novolazarevskaya station. He needed surgery. Evacuation was not an option, and at the time, there were no alternative treatments. Imagine being in that situation. You're the sole trained care provider for a thousand miles, and you get sick. You can't leave. You can't call for help. And if you don't get surgery, which usually requires you to be unconscious, you will probably die a horrible and painful death. What would you do? Well, if you're a 27-year-old Russian doctor, you take your chances and do the surgery yourself. Again, though, this was not done rashly. Surgeons usually operate standing up or sitting over their patients with a full view of the surgical site and a tray of supplies nearby. But if you're the patient, you can't really stand over yourself and still be part of your own body. So 
he had to do the operation lying down and looking in a mirror. Now, I want you to try this as an experiment. Well, not self-surgery. Please don't try that. But pick a procedure you know well, like writing a sentence with a pen or tying your shoe, and then try doing it correctly while looking in a mirror. It's not easy. But if you're performing surgery backwards and upside down that your life really does depend on, I imagine you're pretty motivated to get it right. So Dr. Rogozov practiced the procedure using a mirror and then trained the base driver and the base meteorologist to be makeshift scrub nurses. He used a solution of Novocaine for local anesthesia, same stuff the dentist uses to numb your mouth, and made a 10 to 12 centimeter incision in his own abdominal wall. While opening the peritoneum, he accidentally cut into his cecum, part of the large intestine. He had to make sure that this was sutured up and closed before he could continue, but he did this, and once he was done, continued his dissection down towards his appendix. During the procedure, he experienced several bouts of weakness and nausea, and he understandably took frequent breaks during the procedure, but successfully managed to resect his own appendix, apply antibiotics into his peritoneal cavity, and close his own abdomen. He reported the procedure took him about two hours. After the operation, his fever and peritonitis resolved, and he resumed his regular duties about two weeks later. While this is clearly a unique experience, and you can't really screen out appendicitis, the incident did call attention to the health of Antarctic personnel, and it changed Soviet policy. Pre-deployment medical screening became a hallmark of Antarctic expeditions, and it remains so today. And modern stations nearly always have more than one care provider on site in case one of them becomes a patient. My own experience, we had three physicians and a team of nurses, paramedics, and PAs as well. Another event that influenced modern medical capabilities at the pole stems from the changes in transport itself. In the 1900s, ships like the Endurance would carry 28 people to the continent over the course of a week or so. But today, aircraft can ferry hundreds of people in only a few hours. In the mid-1970s, Air New Zealand even offered tourist flights around Mount Erebus, which is the tallest mountain on Ross Island, to view the continent from the air. It's a beautiful sight, and easily understandable why tourists would buy tickets for such an experience. And on November 28th of 1979, one of these tourist flights, Air New Zealand Flight 901, took off with 257 passengers. Tickets for this flight ran about $860 in today's money. And for that price, in addition to getting an aerial tour of Antarctica, they also were to have Sir Edmund Hillary of Mount Everest fame as their tour guide. But he had to cancel at the last minute, and another climber, Peter Mulgrew, took his place. The weather was clear, the pilots had flown the route before, but for some reason, the ground crew had loaded a different flight plan into the computer, and the air crew had not been briefed on this. Also, even on clear days, wind around the continent blows snow high into the air, which likely made Mount Erebus look like just another cloud, and one that Flight 901 flew directly into just before 1 p.m. on November 28th. A search and rescue operation was quickly organized based out of McMurdo Station, not far from the crash site, but despite their efforts, all 257 people on board were killed. That crash is among the deadliest in Antarctic history, but it is not the only mass casualty event to occur. Antarctica has seen multiple plane crashes, shipwrecks, snowmobile accidents, structure fires, and other events over the past hundred years, and it's that history which informs the modern medical capability on the continent today.
Dramatic examples like Flight 901 highlight new risks and the need for robust mass casualty search and rescue and evacuation capability on the continent. However, the old temptations to disregard known hazards of extreme environments still occur today as well. For example, in 1997, a team of six highly experienced skydivers attempted a jump over the South Pole. The South Pole sits just over 2,800 meters above sea level, and the airplane flew at 5,500 meters in order to give the jumpers enough altitude to land safely. All things being equal, the atmosphere at that altitude is roughly half as thick as it is at sea level, so it contains about half the amount of oxygen in each breath you take. I'll do a little bit more about atmosphere in a later segment, but briefly, based on tests conducted with young, healthy military men, an individual at that pressure altitude can function for about 20 to 30 minutes before experiencing problems from this lack of oxygen. That's a condition known as hypoxia. And the time, that 20 to 30 minute period, is referred to as the time of useful consciousness. Hypoxia basically means the brain is starved of oxygen, and its symptoms include lovely things like confusion, euphoria, slowed reaction times, stupor, shortness of breath, unconsciousness, and death if left to go too long. However, since hypoxia is caused by a lack of oxygen, adding oxygen back in generally fixes the problem. So for this reason, most aviation organizations require that the cabin of aircraft flying at that altitude be pressurized or oxygen be worn by flight crew to ensure that the crew won't get confused and disoriented. However, under some circumstances, short hops to that altitude can be done without oxygen, such as skydiving. However, the poles are a unique environment, and the Earth's rotation tends to pull the atmosphere outwards towards its equator, leaving it thinner at the poles and thicker by the equator. So 5,500 meters at the South Pole behaves as if it's a little closer to 6,700 meters and actually contains much less oxygen. Under ideal conditions, the time of useful consciousness at that altitude is only five to 10 minutes. And I probably don't need to tell you that jumping out of a plane over the South Pole in temperatures of minus 130 Celsius does not constitute ideal conditions. So while the pilots had supplemental oxygen for themselves, the jumpers did not. Six highly experienced people jumped, only three survived the fall. The survivors included a tandem team, two people under one parachute, and a single jumper. The tandem team had an uneventful jump. They pulled their ripcord, parachute inflated, they landed safely. The single jumper also landed safely, but discovered after landing that he had failed to pull his own ripcord, and was saved only by the fact that he had an automatic activation device, which deployed his parachute for him. The other three jumpers did not have automatic activation devices, and they hit the ground without pulling their ripcords. These skydivers were experienced. They knew about hypoxia, and they knew the altitudes at which it occurs, but they likely let their familiarity with the activity of skydiving overshadow the uniqueness of the environment, and they failed to look into the unique properties of the atmosphere over the poles. This is not a story of stupidity or inexperience any more than Scott's is, but it is an example of complacency and lack of planning in an unforgiving environment. The same themes and lessons apply. We've identified a lot of lessons over the years, but identifying lessons is not the same as learning them. We still make mistakes. We still let thoughts of glory and pride get in our way. We still take shortcuts to save time and effort, and we all get complacent with experience. 
Under most circumstances today, the environment is forgiving enough and technology is helpful enough to let us get by despite these shortcomings. But in the places where exploration medicine practitioners operate, the environment is far less forgiving. And it's our job as practitioners of exploration medicine to know these shortcomings about ourselves and our crews and build it into our plan. Planning, preparation, and studying past experience really can prevent disaster. And when that's not enough, practicing the skills needed to recognize when that strategy no longer applies and how to adapt to it can save lives. We've learned a lot since the early days, but knowledge still requires us to learn it to be useful. As a bit of follow-up, because no good physician ignores the importance of follow-up, William Parry of North Pole fame was later knighted for his exploratory prowess and went on to continue in a distinguished career for the British Navy. He died in July of 1855 and was buried in Greenwich Hospital Cemetery at age 64. Friedroff Nansen continued to explore the world until being appointed a delegate to the League of Nations for Norway in 1918 and later winning the Nobel Peace Prize for work with Russian refugees during the war as well as other refugees in Asia Minor and in Thrace. He died of a heart attack in his home at age 68. Both Perry and Nansen had craters named after them on the moon. Shackleton died of a sudden heart attack while on another expedition to Antarctica aboard the ship Quest with his former navigator Frank Worsley. The expedition had run smoothly until January 5, 1922 when he noted to the ship's physician he felt unwell and died shortly thereafter. His wife requested that he be buried on South Georgia Island, where he rests to this day. Roald Amundsen continued at the forefront of exploration, turning his attentions north and to the new technology of air travel. He flew planes and airships over the North Pole, including one expedition where they were forced to land and almost became stranded when their plane froze into the ice. He and his crew shoveled an estimated 600 tons of ice to clear an airstrip after eating only 400 grams, about a pound of food. He is also one of the four expeditioners able to make a controversial claim to be the first to reach the North Pole, and he's certainly the first to reach both poles. He became so proficient with North Polar flight that when an Italian airship, the Italia, crashed over the North Pole, he and five others scrambled a rescue mission, taking off on a Latham 47 flying boat in June of 1928. They were never seen again. They were believed to have crashed in the Barents Sea and died on impact or shortly after, and Nansen even memorialized him, saying, quote, He found an unknown grave under the clear sky of the icy world, with the whirring of wings of eternity through space. End quote. In 2004 and again in 2009, the Royal Norwegian Navy organized an underwater search for the plane, but found nothing, leaving Amundsen to rest in his unknown grave. As for Dr. Rogozov, he continued to practice medicine in Leningrad, serving as head of surgery for the St. Petersburg Research Institute for Tubercular Pulmonology until his death from lung cancer in 2000 at age 66. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope you enjoyed it. In our next episode, we'll talk with some of the people who are currently practicing medicine in the Antarctic and learn the challenges that we face there today. Once again, I am Dana Levin, and thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. And a special thanks to our production team, Jeremy Seeker and Emily Stratton. And again to Eric Antonson for inspiring the idea behind this episode and to Vanilla Kennedy for inspiring the podcast itself. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. More information on each episode, including comments board and links to resources, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, 
feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.